Hello and welcome back to another edition of Friends of the Vine Wine Podcast. We are back with episode 26. Glad that you guys made it back from the last episode. My chat with uh, my good friend Steve and a bit of a recap of the Vancouver International Wine Festival. Before we get into this week's guest, I just want to throw out a couple quick shout outs. It was International Women's Day on Friday. And I wanted to fire out a couple quick little shout out to some longtime listeners and uh, some women that um, within the wine industry that are inspirational in regards to people within the wine industry that um, are great people that are very inspirational. People I've chatted about before and I had on my show that includes Katie Trescott. She is found on Instagram at Katie's Wine Life and my friend Alex Anderson. And she is on Instagram as well, Wine with Alex. Uh, one of my shout-outs is to longtime listener Christina McClure and another longtime listener and longtime uh, friend of the show is uh, Heather Lip, and she is 10K Bottles on Instagram. I actually will throw out uh, two other shout-outs, and actually they're both uh, women as well. I figure to keep the theme going. So there's two more shout-outs. One is to Lorna Moffitt, and she can be found on Instagram as down to a wine art. She actually sent me a message about a month ago in response to my episode with Heather Lip with 10, with 10K Bottles. And uh, her comment was, this was a good one. Always good interviews with inspiring people, especially the girls. Cheers, Ian. So thanks, Lorna, for that one. And the other shout out was to Alicia Myers. Let me just find the message from Alicia. She is Alicia Myers Wine Art. And that's spelt E-L-Y-S-I-A. Myers dot Weinart. I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing Alicia correctly, but uh, regardless, the message from her was after the episode with Christy Norman, and she goes, "I love Christy. I also listened to your episode with Heather and enjoyed all the background on how her book came to be." So uh, she had seen Heather's post um, about our episode, and then she actually went and found the uh, episode with Christy Norman as well. So thanks very much on that one, and uh, we actually got in quite a nice little chat about how. I kind of go about choosing my guests and stuff. And basically, it's someone that, you know, I appreciate and respect their, you know, their contributions to wine. And But for me, it also has to have that personal rapport and that connection and that, that emotional connection and that, you know, meaningful connection that I have with that person. And, and that's the reason why I want to have them on the show. And obviously, some, some something about... Their contribution to wine is something I appreciate as well. They're a, a wine writer or they're a winemaker or they're within the business in some capacity. And, uh, of course, I try and make it more of a chat and a conversation than an interview. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, getting that good rapport and, and, and having that conversation flow. And however the conversation goes is, is however it goes. Because sometimes people ask me, well, you know, are, what's the structure? And, you know, there's specific questions I have in mind, but... Uh, wherever the conversation goes is where it goes. So with that in mind, let's get to this episode. Uh, this episode is with Jack Chapman. Jack is uh, London-based. He is the senior portfolio manager for Cult Wines. And that is a company. It's this, um, his office is in London. That This company is specifically a wine investment type company. And for those who are looking at having a portfolio and having wine as a financial investment that they can sit on and 
and earn some earn some income and and there's obviously a lot of of wines in the market that fit that category and we kind of go into that a lot uh in this episode and just a lot of other fun things we go into as well just kind of our takes on certain certain things current wine topics and we actually start our conversation with jack actually at his parents farm which is outside london where he has about an acre's worth of vines and he actually uh is able to bottle uh he's got quite a few varieties and he's actually able to bottle quite a bit of um of wine every year so he actually was doing some winter pruning and we caught up and got into our conversation and that's where this episode starts so let's get right into it so out in the vineyard eh Mm. Yeah, chilly old day. Uh, we're doing winter pruning at the moment. It's, I mean, a vineyard is a, a sort of grandiose term for a small scrap of. It's, it's about half an acre um, on my parents' farm that we just play around with. It's still, um, it's still pretty all, impressive. It's that's a good size. Yeah, it makes about six hundred bottles a year, or should do when it's really you know up to speed. So it was sort of made with a view to to keep me in free alcohol <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> that, that works. Um, yeah, exactly. You take a look at what your biggest outgoings are, and you look at how to sort of bring them down. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever um, have you watched Psalm three? No, I haven't yet. Actually, there's a, there's a wine club in London called Sixty Seven Pound Mal that um, I'm lucky enough to be a member of, and they did a big sort of screening day okay. when it came out. Um, I, yeah, I, I didn't get around to going to see it. Is it is it any good? It, it is. I just it's funny because Stephen Spurrier references. He says he averages about a thousand bottles a year. You know, if you're tasting on a weekend or whatever, and uh, that you're talking about your 600 bottles a year, <laughs> just reminding me of that. <laughs> Christ, his liver, I, I don't know how they measure, you know, your sort of liver function. It must be absolutely off the charts. Yeah, the size that takes, it moves all the other organs out of the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it must be very strong. Yeah. What have you got planted? So we've got six different varieties. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a um, mixed bag. So there's there are only eleven rows of vines. Um, one of them, in a slight sort of nod to hopefully the the future of UK viticulture, has been uh, put down to Bacchus, which is a, a sort of fairly lesser known crossing, I think, of Riesling and Muller Turgau, uh, which is made in some lab in Germany, which is you know very sort of high yielding. It's it's quite an easy grape to crop. Uh, it, it ripens very quickly. So it makes almost Sauvignon Blanc esque wines with a little bit more elderflower um, mm, cool. quality to them. So they're you know they're fine. It's it's never going to be something that uh, bashes the main Romani Conti off of its pedestal. It's it's not <laughs> it's not fine <laughs> wine. But I think just if you look at all the New World wine regions and, and the UK is a New World wine region, whichever way you slice it, they've all established their reputation off the back of a single grape variety. Um, you know, Chile has Carmenere or, or Merlot, I suppose. Australia has Shiraz. Um, South Africa, you've got the Cape Blends or all these different things, you know, Californian um, Napa Cabernets and, and all that sort of stuff. In, in a very, it's quite a sweeping statement, obviously, but they all tend to, to make their way through one grape. And I think the UK is, is going to be Bacchus uh, eventually. You know, it's, that's the kind of thing you'll walk into your supermarket in X number of years and, and you'll buy off the shelf to, to have on a Wednesday evening. Mm. Um, it won't be our fine wine, but... That's that's where I see the future, uh, and then we've got Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Meunier. So fairly classic, cool yeah. climate, um, French mix, I suppose. Well, and that that just kind of it's funny you say that because it kind of brings up a bit of a of a debate in a sense about New World wines and 
you know, you can plant, you can plant like in BC, we've got almost 70 different varieties that are planting, but there's about four or five really good ones that really work. And as much as, you know, new world, you can do whatever you want. The, at, at some point you have to realize what's working for you and what's not, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So you're, you're building an identity, aren't you? And, and again, it's a cynical way to look at it, but every, every wine region, every wine country has to have uh, a USP, doesn't it? I mean, why would I buy whatever from country X unless it was at the pinnacle of, of that sort of uh, viticulture? So, uh, yeah, I think you're spot on. You know, obviously, you've got loads of great varieties out there, but eventually you'll, you'll become known globally just for making amazing Chardonnay or brilliant Pinot Noir or, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and I think England at the moment, sadly, well, not sadly, because we're doing it very well, we're pushing too hard towards sparkling wine. Um, we're, we're trying to beat the, the champagne wire at their own game. And, and, you know, you have all these blind tastings, um, these judgments of whatever they're calling them. And uh, the English Fizz does very well against champagne, but champagne has 400, 450 years of passive marketing behind it. Yeah. You know, there's such an association of, of popping a bottle of champagne. It's, it's synonymous with celebration, you know, with, with things going well in your life that to unseat um, something like that and exactly you know doing it in exactly the same fashion with the same grapes with you know arguably the same um, soil types and things is I don't think it's going to work you need to you need to come up with your own angle uh, and make a name for yourself in that way and even um, not even pass well I guess you could call it passive marketing but even just in in culture the identity that comes with it like I'm thinking you know in songs and in movies and just in your overall pop culture uh, and now even Prosecco is kind of getting that that reputation as well, that like champagne, that it's that's kind of becoming the, the one to, to pop. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> quite literally. Yeah. But um, uh, I mean, Prosecco is a it's a fascinating case, isn't it? It's uh, people have taken that association with fizzy wine um, and, and they've sort of lashed it to drinkability and affordability. And Prosecco, to me, I think is a very boring drink. Um, there are obviously good ones out there and I, I don't want to uh, be maligned by the entire Prosecco industry for, <laughs> for them hearing me say something like that. But uh, it's a little bit sweeter, isn't it? It's very forward. It's very easy to drink. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't have the acids, the complexities, you know, the, the secondary tertiary characters that champagne can develop that makes it so interesting. So it's, it's an ideal sort of bland drink for the mass market. Throw some bubbles in there and it becomes a special occasion every single time you open a bottle. And, and because it costs you, uh, you know, um, probably at very most half of what you might pay for a bottle of champagne, all of a sudden every night is a special night and it's it's really a drive towards um the the sort of marketing instagram social media world we live in where everyone's obsessed with living their best life every day and and all that kind of stuff and and prosecco as a wine region has cashed in so so well um on that passive marketing from from champagne if if you think about, you know, Mert Hennessy, um, how much money they spend on Verve Clicquot and Mert Chandon, Don Perignon, Crew, just to to establish those brands and keep them in the the ascendancy that, that they're sort of used to being in. Um, all of a sudden, Prosecco has just jumped in. They've spent no money at all on any kind of marketing and advertising, and they've established themselves so, so well off the back of it. The, those Italian producers must be, I think, I think they're living their best life, not, not the people <laughs> yeah. drinking it. Yeah, they they are for sure. <laughs> yeah, and and that like a lot of my podcasts, I've had people on that we always talk about that kind of 
like you said, that what's what's uh, the favorite in the market right now? That kind of sweet, uh, the cougar juice, as we call it. You know, the <laughs> um, those kind of things that are, are appeal to the mass markets and stuff, and uh, and and the exp- and the price point as well, because for us, especially in our in BC, we get hit heavily with taxes and stuff. So you're already spending 30, you know, if you want a decent bottle of wine, you're spending anywhere between 25 to 30 Canadian for a quote unquote, you know, Tuesday night wine. Um, You can Mm. potentially be spending, you know, 25 bucks a bottle. If you don't want to drink, you know, the, the mass marketed, um, you know, the yellowtails and the, you know, the, 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 the one and a half liter, you know, big kind of apple juices, right? You've you've got to you've got to lay out some serious money then. Yeah, you 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 have to you have to lay out a little bit, or you or you what you do is you start which which is what I've started doing is you start looking at those other markets like we're like you're saying like like Chile and like um, uh, Australia even and Argentina and all the new world new world places you can get. Uh, comparable obviously not the same yeah but you want to get your merlot or something you're going to maybe now look at chile or argentina because you can start looking at the price point and going okay this is this is only 20 dollars, and you're saving yourself yeah, perhaps right. you know 10 I 15 dollars everyone's obsessed with finding value aren't they wherever you are and i think especially the more the more you get into the wine industry and, and, you know, the more wine you drink, the more obsessed you become with not only finding value, but just finding a point of difference. Um, I think we're so spoiled in the UK, um, obviously somehow finding our way at the centre of, of a viticultural hub, just historically, I suppose, to do with our relationship with France, you know, going back to Eleanor Aquitaine and then uh, relationship with Portugal and, and proximity to Europe and all that sort of thing. We we get probably more different wine and, and lack of a native wine industry. We, we get more different wine than anyone else in the world turning up here, I think. But just to find something that that is different, that tastes completely different. I mean, you you asked me briefly, didn't you, to, to sort of think about a life-changing wine, you know, something that, that I've tasted that is a bit of a heart stopper. And for me, it's never something expensive. It's it's never, you never sit down with a bottle that costs 500 quid, you know, your Lafitte's or Petrus or DRC or anything silly like that. I've, I've never had, I mean, I've not had much of them because I can't afford to. <laughs> it's always on someone else's money whenever you do try something like that as as lovely as they are they have a certain element of predictability to them i think a good way to put it yeah it's always striving to to not only find something affordable but just something that sort of reawakens your passion for i mean for me um in particular for the industry that i work in so it's it's challenging i think to and and actually i'm relatively obsessed with california wine i think the sonoma coast offers quite an abundant stretch of of wines that do buck the trend to a certain extent and i think and it's interesting to hear you say that you know you you have to pay so much for especially i I suppose european wine that's imported to uh to canada and and certainly the american clients that i speak to they they love buying italian wine they love buying um wine from bordeaux or, or burgundy um and it has a certain cachet i think because you can't get it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's human nature. If, if you can't get hold of it, you want it. Yeah. Um, and it's the same for us with wine from the US over here. We pay in pounds um, what what um, people in California will pay in dollars and, mm. and probably a bit more. 
for the same bottle of wine, and that just makes you want it even more um, because you can't you can't get ready access to it. You can read about it, you can't taste it, and then it costs you a fortune when you do. So it's it's weird how those sort of things um, pan out. Yeah, and that's and that's again, like you said, going back to value and going back to if if you're willing to pay it because you know the the pound is almost probably one and a half times you know the american dollar so i mean if you're willing to pay at, it at time of speaking yeah let's not um let's <laughs> like go, go down the currency road at the moment could be anywhere in the next week <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah actually it's funny that you mentioned about, about um california wines and stuff because today is our or this this past week is the vancouver international wine festival i'm actually going this oh, yeah. afternoon and California wines are the featured uh, region, um, so I'll be tasting a few uh, a few nice cabs uh, this afternoon. That'd be great. Have, uh, have you got a particular favorite, you know, producer wine region, anything like that? Uh, there's a couple different ones I'm I'm looking at, and uh, I've, we actually, the, you know, of course they give you a little program and everything uh, ahead of time of of what uh, of what you know what's going to be poured and stuff. So there's a couple different ones yeah. that I'm looking at. Um, I like Sonoma as well, um, and uh, there's a, there's a couple different ones that I'm I'm kind of looking at. But I'll, I'll I don't want to uh, I want to be surprised when I get there. I think you know what I mean. There's going to be yeah, somebody and that's that the best thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's a few. There's, there'll be a few big ones like you know Robert Mondavi and and a lot of the a lot of the big ones are going to be there. There's one I've heard is, of. Is that going to be Robert Mondavi Winery, or is it um, Continuum that uh, exhibiting? I don't know in that. Yeah, and I don't know in that sense because they don't they don't specify if it's just the if it's just the importer uh, pouring or if it's actually the wine. Actually, no. You know what? Some of them they do. They mention if it's specifically the wine the winemaker or the winery themselves. Okay, I should have. It's probably going to be Robert Mondavi Winery, isn't it? After they sold it and started the, it, it would be listed as Continuum if it was the, the new project. Right. You know, I, I see what you're saying. They also kind of break it up between if it's just the importer that's that's pouring, or if it's actually the winery itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's one called uh, Michael David Winery. It's a it's a small little winery, um, and it's uh, David Phillips, is is coming up. Okay. Um, I'm actually hoping to have him, have him on a uh a podcast down the road all right cool i've never heard of them and that's that's you know another thing that's great is discovering something new from from california that isn't in the uk or you know you've not heard of yet yeah i get so cynical with wine from bordeaux in particular you can almost sort of taste it before you've opened the bottle i think most of the time right um, which is an awful, awful thing to say for the wine region that that really got me you know heavily involved Mm. in in fine wine in the first place but i think once you've discovered a few of the greats do you not find that that you feel like you almost know it all yeah and that's i guess that's the allure of of new world wines is because there you 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 don't know what was coming basically right yeah exactly there, there are no appellation laws that state you know you must have 13.5 percent alcohol from a yield of x amount and you know your grape vines are planted at this density in this area da, 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 um, down to the nth degree so you just you don't know they that winemaker could have done absolutely anything to that bottle uh and you yeah you don't know what it's going to taste like when you open it i find that vastly more exciting than um you know, being able to delineate things via this old world uh, classification system. Yeah, for sure. But I guess also in the same, 
in the same regard, if if it's Pinot or if it's if it's a if it's Cabernet Franc or what or whatever, I want I want if you're gonna do something like that, I'd rather that be on the tertiary level or or I don't want to if you want to have a little bit of that recognizable classic taste to it. If you know what I mean. Yeah, you want some typicity, don't you? Because otherwise, what's the point in in having Pinot Noir if it yeah. tastes like a Cabernet Sauvignon? You're yeah. sort of you're thinking, mm, it's yeah. not not what I was looking for to go with the food I'm eating or, or something that, that like too. that. So yeah, yeah, it can it can easily fall off of a cliff, but it's yeah. it's nice to it's nice to be surprised still. Oh, for sure, and and um, to add some. Well, I I know for BC ones, there's always that seems to be like a peppery uh, finish that you don't necessarily expect on some wines and and it seems to be a on a, a few of the wines up here that there seems to be that kind of extra level um and a little bit of that um tobacco leaf kind of the leather tobacco leaf kind of notes as well that seem to play into a, a few of them even if they're not you know um Syrahs or, or Cabernet Francs or whatever they they seem to have a bit of that extra extra little notes in there which a few people up here seem to be doing yeah, and I actually, I really, I've got a bit of a, an obsession with um, sort of stereotypically warm climate grapes, you know, like Syrah and Cabernet and things grown in in cool climate areas. Mm. I think they produce really, yeah, but new world cool climate areas. So you know, like like you said, a, a Syrah from from up your way, or yeah, um, I don't know, like Santa Barbara, I think is a, a really good example. If you can get a great Syrah from there, I find them just so much more interesting. Yeah, um, Washington State uh, for Washington State and Oregon as well. If you're, it, they've got a very similar um, cool yeah, climate. Yeah, absolutely uh, adore. Yeah, adore both. Um, we were uh, we were lucky enough to have Quilsada Creek um, come into the office a few months ago to to take us through all the Bordeaux blends, and they are absolutely amazing. Um, it's just the the technical approach they have. You know, it's such a new world sort of science to how they make the wine they were talking about how they you know micro oxygenation usually comes in the form of injecting little bubbles and things into the wine or, or however they do it but they were saying how they almost fire large depth charged bubbles of air into it to break oh, cool. everything up yeah really really good wines and and i think dramatically underpriced you know they, they score i think the last 10 years they've had about five or six hundred points from from the wine advocate which is not the be all and end all but for a bottle that's i think they barely peaked 200 pounds is pretty exceptional mm. um well tell me about we're, since we're talking about your office and investments and stuff um tell me a little bit about uh what you do in cult wines and kind of a little bit about the philosophy of it okay i will i'll try not to run into a full-blown sales pitch here so <laughs> stop me if, well stop I've, me if I go I've, too, I've, too got long friend, I've got your friend i've got your I've got your friend Sam was, it, coming on down the road as well, so I'll, I'll get him to do the sales pitch too. Yeah, get him to do the, the grizzly tendony bits. I mean, he's been there a lot longer than me, so you know he knows it a lot, <laughs> a lot better than I do. Um, but it's a great company that it, it was established only about twelve years ago, so you know, relatively young company. That I think it's it's fair to call it a disruptor um, because it was it was started by an investment banker, um, a chap called Philip Gearing, who loved 
loved his wine. You know, certain proclivities always come with investment banking, and, and he very much enjoyed Burgundy um, to the point where he started importing it. And he actually realized that the, the Burgundy he was holding on to was making just as much, if not more money than the traditional, you know, stocks, equities, uh, all these sorts of things that he was investing in um, for a living uh, and with far lower volatility as well. So he sort of, you know, the company was born to allow people to get access to fine wine as an investment, which I think is is something that a lot of people have been taking advantage of um, who are in the know. You know, it's, it's a very stereotypical sort of English gentleman thing. You have your seller of Bordeaux, you buy two cases of everything, um, you lay them down for five years, you sell half of it, and then it, in essence, you've got the other half for free. Mm. Um, but to do that, you tended to, you know, you needed to know a bit about wine and, and the wine world is constantly becoming more and more complicated. So we're, we're really there to bridge the knowledge gap between people that have money that they, you know, they want to invest in wine, but don't know really exactly how to access the market. So we're, we're the expertise, we're the, the advisory service that helps you pick different cases of wine to, to add to your portfolio. Um, at the right moment, you know, to to generate capital, and then helps helps you sell them uh, sell them out at the other end when they've hit um, a sort of peak point in the market. Uh, so it's very similar to picking stocks and shares. You know, if you you can do it on your own. If you were to buy a case of twenty seven Lafitte and leave it for five years, you you know you might make money, um, but you're probably going to make more money if you've got a, an advisor that's been working in the industry for a long time doing it for you. And we can dig into fine wine as an asset even further if you want to. Um, it, you know, it, there are different market dynamics at play that, that do make it sort of relatively complicated, which, again, is, I think, why, why Cult Wines has grown from nothing to, um, you know, the size it is today in 12 years. Um, that's cool. Um, but it's just... Sorry. No, no, no. That, that's cool. Uh, I was just curious if you... Do you guys go to auctions as well for for your clients? No, we don't actually. Um, I'm I'm an ex fine wine auctioneer. That was uh, sort of my previous not not previous job, but previous um, but one. Um, we will occasionally sell wine at auction if it's necessary. You know, if you get an incredibly rare piece, then sometimes it's it's going to realise more more money by going to auction than being brokered. Um, but generally no it's it's not something that that we address i think you know having worked in that industry there are a lot of merits to it but provenance is always an issue um i think with sour grapes and all these movies and and coming more and more into the spotlight you know various large-scale wine frauds that happened with penfolds over um in australia a couple of years ago it's just so so necessary to be very tight on whatever we're buying because you, you just, you know, you, you don't know if you get it from auction, where it's been stored, where it's come from. Um, and also in the UK, we have the, the in-bond system. So everything we purchase is, is bought without tax and it's kept in a government bonded warehouse. So you, you buy without VAT, you buy without duty, it, it stays there. Mm. And, uh, and then when it's sold, you know, it's also sold without VAT and without duty. So from from a tax exemption standpoint we're, we're only ever buying um that that sort of wine which doesn't so frequently come up at auction um and uh you know it's it's an asset as well but luckily here um and i think around all of europe as well i, I know 
uh, your side of the pond, there are a few taxes. Uh, it was a collectibles tax, but but in the UK, certainly it's classed as a wasting asset. So the, there are no capital gains taxes on selling selling out the other end. So you do get to keep all the money that you make, uh, which is pretty appealing, I think. Yeah, for sure. Is is there something on the market now? I'm just thinking kind of like current current uh, current wine trends and current. Is there something that you're? I know that there's always the classic like Bordeaux. But is there something that you're seeing currently that's trending that uh, perhaps you hadn't seen before? You know what I mean? Like a current um, region or a current grape? Yeah, I mean, the, the market is is quite dynamic at the moment. I think if you go back probably even five years, maybe ever so slightly further, 80 to 90 percent of um, our clients' portfolios were, were all in Bordeaux. Um, you know, they, they were very heavily invested in that area. It's always been the, the traditional side of wine investment. Um, if you bring it forward to, to current day, we've probably got about 50%, just over 50%. So it has backed off a lot as a, as a wine investment region. And I think, again, a very sweeping statement, really, it's, um, it's got a lot to do with China. Mm. So if you, if you consider how China entered the wine market, it was really about 15 years ago, I'd say that they really started to, to proliferate large amounts of, of the world's famous wines. And if you consider Bordeaux as a wine region, it's actually relatively straightforward. Uh, and it has that sort of conspicuous consumption element, which anyone that doesn't know a huge amount about wine, but but wants to sort of prove that they're doing very well for themselves, uh, is able to buy into. You know, if, if you put Lafitte, um, if you put Petrus, Chateau Marguerite, anything like that on your table, uh, immediately you, you've got a brand, there's a sense of brand identity and your friends go, oh, isn't he doing very well? He's just bought a magnum of, of 82 Lafitte. Yeah. And it doesn't require a huge amount of knowledge to, to sort of access that. Um, as that market has very rapidly matured over those 15 years, I, I think you know China actually has more WSET qualified, um, especially young people in it, than any other country in the world. Um, so the you know they're very obsessed with with their wine now. Um, I suppose by dint of population, that sort of helps um, yeah. raise that number. But um, they've moved on or are moving on very much to um, to more complex uh, wine regions and just like us, you know, looking outside of Bordeaux to see what else is there. And and ultimately, the holy grail in that respect is Burgundy. Um, it's it's so complex that you can never really fully discover everything that the that burgundy has to offer and so from an investment perspective you know buying into that the, there's still that conspicuous consumption element so buying into the top burgundies or or being able to isolate those producers that are very much on the rise um has been a place that you know we've really found found value over the last few years i mean our burgundy index was up over 27 percent last year and you know in, in a year in which the global economy was so so flat and so volatile, it, it just continued to to climb very very readily, and very reliably. So I, I'd say that Burgundy is obviously not you know it's not something that's brand new and all of a sudden has appeared, but as an investment region, it's it's really pushing Bordeaux out of the way. So I, I predict you know that the Bordeaux side of our portfolios will probably back off more as we go on and, and burgundy will grow probably alongside uh, wine from california which again is is being proliferated far more globally i think than it was before and um champagne is is something that 
just can't be ignored. I think over over a long term, you know, if you're looking for a sort of eight to ten year investment, champagne is is incredibly safe. And because the the market is so consumption led, um, you know, people are buying champagne for for a certain reason, and, and that is to to have a party, you know, to have a celebration. It's it's very rare that. Um, unlike you know good vintage claret that people might sit on for 20 or 30 years it's it's very rare that champagne will last that long in in people's cellars or collections so once it's all been drunk which happens very rapidly the the last remaining cases from a very good vintage um inevitably shoots up in value it's it's quite predictable in that sort of fashion and that's it's interesting because california like you were saying uh, as an investment it you want to sit on it longer because because i mean uh, you know aged aged cab just if you, you if you if you could if you don't you know bring it out of your cellar and crack it open you know if you can sit on it 10 years 15 years 20 years um not only as an investment but just from the from the consumption side of it as well right yeah i mean it tastes awesome um <clears throat> and actually we uh, another bit of a name drop here, but we had Will Harlan um, in the office last week with uh, Promontory, the the new um, new wine, and he was closely followed by the guys from um, Jackson family, so Cardinal and Lacoya. Uh, it was a bit of a bit of a treat of a day. Um, they were talking about how, I mean, partly there's not much aged California wine on the market at all. You know, it's it's just not something that has been going long enough for people to develop large collections um to to then sell on the secondary market but also um i think the the us in particular they quite like to drink their wine young um so it's it's far more likely that if you buy a case of screaming eagle for consumption you're probably going to drink it in the the first five years um again a, a sort of a sweeping statement but the wines are more approachable young um, and there's uh, there's more of that, you know. I I, I want it now attitude for sure. Um, you so, you, you yeah, buy you can you buy one for one to drink that day. Like when you go to the liquor store, you buy two. You buy one to put put down for a couple a couple weeks, and you buy one to drink <laughs> that night. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, two weeks is probably the the longest spread for that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I, I, whereas there's a real tradition here of you know crusty old blokes having cellars full of Bordeaux that they've probably actually sat on for far too long, and it's it's almost you know gone over the edge, and yeah, and there's no fruit left, and it's it's lost a lot of its pleasure. I had Bianca Boscron, the author of Cork Dork, and okay, she had a stat on on the average cons- American consumer on how quickly you know, is consumed within uh, eight hours of purchase or something like that. Um, there's, yeah. you know, 80% of the time is is consumed within eight hours or something something like that. So it's... <laughs> A nation of alcoholics. Can't wait to get that bottle open. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking, because I noticed that you've, that there's a bit of a YouTube presence with, um, with your, with Cult Wines and yourself and um, some yeah. of the things that you're doing. I was just curious if you could tell me about that. Yeah, that's a bit of a new thing. So Tom Gearing, who's our MD, is um, Philip, who I spoke about earlier. It's his son. He's really sort of running the company now. And we uh, both slightly ashamedly, or, or less so um, less so in his respect, have been on reality TV. He was a, I don't, I can't, I don't want to get this wrong, either a semi-finalist or a finalist on The Apprentice. Okay. Um, which is a show you might, I think Donald Trump used to host it in the States. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah, we're familiar with that. Know. Yeah, does Canada have its own version of of that? No, we we just poached the American one. 
Oh, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, we, you know, we have it in the, the UK and it's hosted by this um, Sir Alan Sugar, or Lord Sugar now, I think he is. Um, so he did that. And I was more embarrassingly on a, a TV show called First Dates, which probably hasn't made it over to the US, but it's quite literally uh, a show in which you go in and you have a blind date and they film it. And that's it, uh, which is fairly, fairly popular over here. So we've both got incredibly minor league um, screen experience, I suppose. And uh, he very kindly invited me to start doing One More Glass with him, which is our, which is our YouTube channel. Um, I think just as a, a bit of a secret stab to try and get some fame. <laughs> Not that it's working out. But the, the whole thing is, it's completely separate to Colt Wines. It's just for a bit of fun. I, I think there's a bit too much of an attitude in the wine industry to, to try and keep things complicated. I don't know if you ever run across that. There's, there's a lot of people with, with knowledge who want to, to hang on to it rather than open up and, and actually explain things in a very straightforward fashion. Yeah, um, for, I, I, I totally agree. And, and um, for example, there's a friend of mine named uh, Christy Norman who's a psalm down in L.A., and she's mm. she's put out a couple of YouTube series. Um, uh, one's called Adulting with Alcohol, um, which it's a it's a fun it, like you said it's a fun unpretentious way to to uh, introduce people to wine. And yeah. she's actually she started an online wine course, which actually is going to come out uh, at the end of the month. And um, just a, you know a straightforward with videos and with fun kind of you know, lots of fun references and, and get, get a bit of humor injected into it and try and teach people in a fun way. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's so essential. And, you know, the more people around the world that are doing it, um, the better, because it is, it's fun. I mean, we do it because we enjoy it, don't we? And it's, it should be accessible. It's, it's kind of posted next to things like fine art and, and there's a lot of nuances and there's, there's obviously a lot of complexities and, and it's something that does take a bit of getting into before you really, you know, start to appreciate it. You, you do have to put some work in. Um, but it should, it should be like, so there, there's a lot of pretension. It should be less pretentious, um, more open. And, and that's sort of, I hate using the word demystify. I think it sounds ridiculous, but that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're, we're trying to just make, every man and enjoy every man and woman <laughs> I enjoy the idea of, of fine wine and and be able to sort of get used to the different components of it without you know intimidating anyone um there's just sort of so much social nervousness I think surrounding wine isn't there and, and that's why people buy into brand identity um yeah. if, you, if you put a bottle of Gallo Rosé or Verve Clicquot or something on the table because you bought into a luxury brand, or I suppose Galloism, but you know, a, a certain point of safety, um, a, a brand that's been built around a certain identity, even if the wine tastes like shit, yeah, um, you can fall back on that. You can go, well, okay, the champagne's not very good, but it's Verve Clicquot, or you know, no one will question whether the champagne's good because it's so synonymous with you know the Polo and, and whatever else they've they've sponsored that year. Um, so it's kind of. I'd love to be able to take the training wheels off of everyone and, and just make them confident enough to be able to say, I've tasted this and I like it. And it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter if it's technically brilliant or, or whatever. It's just, just about being able to, to taste something and enjoy it and, and be happy enough to say that. I think. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, 
and that's kind of my my audience that I have are they know what they like and they're trying to move to that next level and get some knowledge and 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 try and get people on the show who yeah have that knowledge base and can can just bring them up that to the next level but in a like you said in a fun and unpretentious way and and not put up any barriers to people that it, yeah exactly it's too technical or too um if you like it you like it regardless of of how it's made or or whether it's a yeah, hundred dollars no, or ten dollars no right answers are there and, and we know that and i think the more confident you become about wine you realize that regardless you know you enjoy what you enjoy and and actually that's all you ever chase in life um but i think like you said it's people that are starting to get to know wine and, and they can say they like a cabernet sauvignon but they can't really say why they like it mm. um so what we focused on with the the first season which will hopefully be be one of many is, is actually you know mainly the structural components of wine mm-hmm. um which again sound ridiculous and intimidating when you start talking about acidity and stuff it just sounds sounds horrible doesn't it but um, if, if you can work out exactly why you like a certain wine, it's far easier to then find others that you like. Um, and it, yeah, take that, it, it makes that journey easier. It sort of facilitates your, your walk through, uh, through, um, discovering wine without drinking so many duff bottles and, and having to, uh, <laughs> to, to shell out the money on them. That, yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny. It's, it, I, I have a kind of. In my mind, when I when people listen to this show and they they go through different episodes, if if they literally go through different episodes, there's a theme I have going through some of my episodes. And you you saying that is a theme I have. Where um, it's funny that because we ha- well, obviously we never talked about this, but I sometimes I talk about favorite grapes and stuff. And one of the one of the shows I had um, Abe from Scolium, the Scolium Project. Um, yeah, he he talked about that exact thing where where don't worry about favorite grapes try and determine what you like about a wine what is it that is your kind of your style basically it's it's finding not only what grape you like but finding the style that you like and just exactly what you said where you're finding what it is about that uh, certain types of grapes and what it is about a, a style that you like yeah, whether completely. it's whether um, it's cool climate or high acid or uh, I call it the rusticness. There's you know the tannin levels and the rusticness of wine, and once you start finding all those little things that you like about it, then you can start seeking out those wines that fit that kind of pro- that style that you're that you like. A profile, yeah, yeah. It's a slippery slope, though, isn't it? it that's a, I think every every one of these wine videos and podcasts should come with a warning that once you get into it. <laughs> there's no turning back yeah um and you'll end up spending far too much time and far too much money you know trying to find the the next most exciting thing yeah that's well that's like like for me i was i was a big i'm a big pinot guy and then i started yeah. getting into italian wines and finding all those all those italian grapes that all of a sudden i'm um, like you know like norello mascalese and you know, even even just bigger ones like like Nebbiolo, and and it's like, ooh, I really like this one, ooh, I, and then you just start going, it just uh, you go off the edge. Yeah, and Italy's got what about a thousand different marketable grape varieties, hasn't it? So you can just fall into a wine hole and never never find your way out of it. Yeah, I appreciate this, by the way. 
Oh, my pleasure. It's really great to uh, really great to have an invitation to come on. I, I didn't get much of a chance to to listen to your other episodes. I think I did listen to the one with um, the the lady who uh, wrote Cork Talk, which is very interesting. Yeah, she um, she was a fascinating. It was a fascinating chat with her. Yeah, it's uh, no, it's a privilege to. Um, I, I like talking, <laughs> so uh, to have anyone listen is always just a bonus. <laughs> I think we're going to leave it there for now. Thanks for listening. For more wine conversation and podcast updates, you can follow us on Instagram at Ian's Wine Truths. Check out our website for great photos of our guests, friendsofthevine.podbean.com. Take care. Have a glass for me.